there, and welcome back to the Made Possible podcast. My name is Carly Cunningham, and I am thrilled to bring you this podcast in collaboration with Small Business BC and my own small business, Big Bold Brand. In this eighth episode, we're digging into advice for how to build a business supporting ecosystem around your small business. Today's guest, Pamela Slim, is a community building master. She's an internationally celebrated author and business coach to many super successful entrepreneurs and small business owners. What I'm really excited about is that we're going to be talking to Pam about her latest book, The Widest Net. This book is all about community building and how to unlock untapped markets and discover new customers right in front of you. And as a special surprise, we've got a few of her books to give away to our listeners. That's you. So if you stay tuned to the end of this episode, we'll tell you all about how you can enter to win. So without any more from me today, let's dig into the interview because there's lots of business brilliance just waiting for you. I am super excited about today's guest. She is a community builder, a master community builder, an internationally celebrated author, a business coach to many super successful entrepreneurs. I always have trouble with that word. And small business owners, welcome Pamela Slim. It is wonderful to be here with you today, Carly. Thank you for being here. And community building is a passion and an expertise of yours. And it's actually a legacy in your family. So I would love to dig into that story. Can you share with our listeners who started this legacy for your family and what is the community building story? Yes, it was my dad, Lewis Stewart, who is really the person that I feel like I learned just about every good thing I know about community building from. And what's so funny is my dad grew up on a farm in central California in Yuba city, California, uh, where my grandparents raised uh, chickens and peaches. And my dad is a very introverted person. So one wouldn't necessarily think from a background in farming and uh, being a really big introvert that he'd be such a community builder, but he always had this really quiet, presence and way of connecting with people. He was very passionate about the environment and so did a lot of work in the early 1970s when I was growing up around recycling. He created the first curbside recycling program in the state of California in 1971. And then after my parents split and he moved to this really wonderful little town in uh, Port Costa, California in Northern California, he and my bonus mom, Dee, spent about 40 years doing lots of community work, um, holding events and gatherings, and a lot of it focused on restoring a 100-year-old school in their community. And I just saw the way that my dad was so open and connected with folks. He listened a lot. He was not overbearing. But his best friend, actually, uh, after he passed away, now it's been uh, about three years, but his best friend uh, came up to me after my dad passed and said, you know, we would have a meeting and people could be sitting around talking for hours at the meeting and your dad would just be really quiet listening. And then he would pipe up like at the end and he would say something that was just so on point and kind of got everybody focused And I love seeing that example, even though I was raised as somebody to be quite extroverted and the uh, bell of the ball. (laughs) (laughs) You were the only extrovert in your family, weren't you? That's right. My entire family, my my mom, dad, sister, and brother are all self-professed introverts, as are my husband and 
my two children. So, <laughs> and then my bonus son, Jeff, as well. So I am very used to being the extrovert amongst introverts. One of the things that I want to touch on, especially for our business leaders listening in, is the value of an introvert in the room. And this is something myself that I've had to learn as a facilitator is the extroverts will always, they always have ideas. They always want to speak up. They're, they're eager to always dive in. And I've really learned that paying specific attention to the introverts around the table and making sure one to open space for them. It's, it's kind of like pushing, it's kind of like parting the Red Sea to make room <laughs> between the extroverts. But the reason for this is illustrated in the story about your dad. He would sit back and he would listen. Our introverts, and I say our, those that are on our teams, they have a very special skill of listening deeply, synthesizing, reflecting in the quiet that they create for themselves and coming up with the brilliance. Do you yeah. see that a lot working with your clients? I really do. I got a very deep dive into understanding the science behind introversion when I worked with Susan Kane, who's the author of the book Quiet, The Power of Introverts. If anybody listening has never read that, it's an absolutely wonderful book. She has one of the top 10 TED Talks of all time. And what was wonderful about doing that work, where ironically, we were building a community for her um, around now what's called quietrev.com or the quiet revolution she really saw what she talks about as one of the, you know, the outside um, realms of inclusion and diversity, which is the extrovert bias. And so many business environments and homes and schools have been set up to really reward the person who speaks quickly, who speaks first, who dominates the conversation. And really, the science behind introversion, there is a part of communication where um, many introverts really like to take more time to reflect, to gather data, to form opinions, not to jump in with, with a, the first idea. And what the science also shows is often those are much better ideas. <laughs> People like myself that might get really inspired and excited and start sharing ideas at the beginning. So we had a lot of good fun in the in the Quiet Revolution team, you know, talking about the the balance with introverts and extroverts. It's definitely wonderful where you have respect for each other. But I am extremely sensitive now, just in my lived experience and my in my family circles, and then in doing the work in community that it's, it's really a wonderful skill to gain to be listening mm -hmm. a lot and listening first. Thank you for pulling it back to community because I know that you and I could tangent so far and on so many good topics, but I will put the link to Susan Cain's book in our show notes. And what I would like to do now is focus back on you to give our listeners more context about what you do and your zone of genius before we dive in deeper to the topic of community. Tell us for about sure. your business. Yes. So I am a business coach and a uh, writer and the co-founder with my husband, Daryl, of the Kef Main Street Learning Lab, which is a physical brick and mortar space right in the middle of Main Street in Mesa, Arizona. And really all of my work uh, revolves around supporting small business owners to uh, start, grow and scale their businesses, but in particular, in a way that's really in harmony with who they are and also in a way that they can bring really great work out into the world. I discovered almost by accident after I wrote each book, <laughs> my first book was Escape from Cubicle Nation that came out in 2009. And that book really came from the work that I had been doing for a number of years, 
with people who were leaving corporate to start a business. And I, I had been a former management consultant for the first 10 years of my business in Silicon Valley. And so I noticed that so many people were having some specific issues and challenges and making that transition that had nothing to do with just the 10 steps to get your business license and get your business insurance and get your website up. It was more, how do I tell my parents that this hard fought education that they've sacrificed their entire lives for, I'm chucking and leaving IBM so that I can open a cookie company. And like those kinds of things, the emotional journey of going from corporate to entrepreneurship, some of the specific ways to help people translate corporate experience into the startup world was very specialized. And that's why I wrote Escape. Body of Work came next. And really it was based on getting tired after a number of years of touting the benefits of, of entrepreneurship, where many people said, you can only be creative and free if you work for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's kind of ridiculous. And it's kind of unkind to the employees who work for you, founder, <laughs> because <laughs> they're employees in your business. And really what matters is creating a body of work that you're very proud of, that is, has, is meaningful to you. And most importantly, many people I find in my now 25 years of experience of working with folks is that they are going to go through different phases of their life where they might want to do quite different things. And for some people, they might want to be inside organizations, outside as contractors and nonprofits. And I really wanted to create a framework that worked for that. So that's where Body of Work came from in 2014. And then my latest book, The Widest Net, is really coming from, you know, once you know what you want to create, how do you build an audience for it? How do you build your business, but in a way that's really highly relational and beneficial for everybody within your ecosystem? Brilliant. That's quite the body of work itself. And I'm going to jump back to body of work for a minute because I think it's really important for anybody to read. I know that Elise, who you know is my wife, um, we used the the content and context of body of, of work in, she wasn't starting a business. She was actually leaving our business to go back into her career. Um, and we used your methodologies and your systems and your ideas in body of work to create her resume because people weren't understanding how all her skills came and wove together to be of benefit to them. And I have used it in sessions with my clients with strategic planning sessions to reveal who has what skills around the table. And I am shocked time and time again, when I work with companies, how leaders don't ask about people's body of work. They read the resume Resumes are often tailored specifically to that job so people can see the obvious. They bring the person in, they train them in their job, but they don't take the time to ask the questions of, well, what other experience do you bring to this? And I had one client who had a, an, a team member in operations and had no clue that she had run, I think her revenue um, in-stream was a $4 million McDonald's franchise at the age of 24 or 25. But it's, it didn't come out because he'd never asked and she didn't see the applicable knowledge. So I find that really fascinating. And I, and I bring that up because I think that is, a, is equally an important book for everyone to read. It's, I just want to say it's so true. And there's a lot of the translation of people, entrepreneurs who, who are starting their businesses that might not consider past experience as being really relevant and I know for my own journey 25 years ago, when I quit my job, 
um, I had been running a nonprofit organization in, in Afro-Brazilian capoeira and martial arts for about 10 years. And even though I was raising money and, and bringing in hundreds of different students into the school each year and doing performances and all these things, I did not translate it in my head as that being entrepreneurial experience. It wasn't mm-hmm. until I went out on my own that I realized that was really valuable. And there are so many cases where we really need to assess everything about our experience um, in order to know what we're capable of, but also when it comes to telling the story about what we do, to mm-hmm. know how it is that we can explain it in a way that's relevant and not overwhelming. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, pulling us back to the subject of community, that's that's our main through way. <laughs> There's so much that you and I could dig into. I would love for you to share with our audience how community is important to your business And when did you realize that building a community ecosystem around your business was a core pillar of its success, as well as your client's business's success? So to me, it's interesting. It's interesting to really define what we mean by community, because I find in the business context, when we talk about it, we tend to think about it separately. Like I have my business and then I do community building as if it's a side function that would Mm -hmm. be nice in our spare time in order to do it. And believe it or not, my degree in college was community development. It was using non-formal education as a tool of social change in Latin America. So I focused, I lived in Mexico and and Colombia and in, in college, but absolutely the frameworks that I saw for making significant social change and especially economic change was based on a model of really centering the people in the community as the main force of change, and then looking for ways in which different community partners could be supporting their growth and direction the way that they wanted to. And how funny is it that, I don't know, 40 something years later, (laughs) I I, uh, am using a lot of those core principles in what I do. And a really important distinction that we'll dig into probably as we get further in the discussion it's not really about building a community around you. Sometimes that is like in our brick and mortar location, there are people who come to our physical location, but in the business context, it's really more about understanding what is the natural ecosystem that already surrounds our ideal clients. Because before Mm -hmm. they meet us or even when they meet us, even though we work with them and our particular area of expertise in the business, they already are following other people. They're, they're watching Ted talks, they're reading books, they're working with other service professionals. If you have a service-based business, they're using technology and products. And so the more that we can understand what is the community or what I call the watering holes, those places in person and online where great amounts of people are gathering, that's going to make the job a lot easier as opposed to trying to pull everything in, everybody in to form your own unique community. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing is in the aha moment I, I had was, is instead of building our own from scratch, find the easiest inroad to community that already exists. That's right. There are people in just about any situation you can imagine. If you are pivoting into a new area of business, if you're getting into a new market. Uh, I have a lot of folks who have been working more in the business to consumer B2C market where they're selling their services. They might start to work in the B2B business to business service because maybe they have a program that they want to sell in, into a into large corporate spaces. And so as they begin to do that work, they 
soon realize that there are other people who already probably have amazing networks of people. There are associations of people that work with business. There might be other consultants that have long experience in, in relationships. So it's more about understanding, okay, I really want to work with name your company, uh, FreshBooks, you know, and so given that, who might be people who already have embedded relationships, who are already working with their customers, who's within their ecosystem. And then from that, engaging with people, really noticing like what are the ecosystem partners providing for, for their ideal clients, which of course are yours as well. Then you can figure out, oh, this is interesting. This feels like it's missing. This could be something I could uniquely provide that would really be providing a contribution to the overall ecosystem. As opposed to what I see a lot is somebody might roll into town or roll up on the internet and say, I am the first person to ever talk about shame and vulnerability. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> might say, have you ever heard of a woman named Brene Brown? She's kind of already done work around that. And so if you had taken the time to maybe explore a little bit what's already there, it can help you to pinpoint a better place for you to operate. Amazing. Speaking of places to operate, and I'm excited to dig into this for the business owners who are in our audience who have larger organizations, because I think the capacity piece of this is important, you have developed an absolutely game-changing element of an ecosystem with Ke. And I would love for you to share how you went about it, because it wasn't that, hey, we're going to get a space in downtown Mesa, and we're going to fling open our doors and tell everybody that we're here and this is what we're doing and this is how we can help. You took a very different approach to that. So can you tell us what Ke is and your approach to building this amazing piece of an ecosystem? Yeah. So in Mesa, Arizona, where where my husband and I live with our family, um, it is uh, in, in the downtown area, we're, we're undergoing what I think a lot of main streets are undergoing, where there is historically, there had been not really a lot of action or activity happening there, but more and more people start to get get interested in kind of, you know, reinvigorating downtown. Um, we've had some interesting new players coming to town, like Arizona State University that's building a new campus. And my husband is Navajo, so he's First Nations. Uh, Native American, and he had been a business owner for many years. And actually, the the idea for the the space started about six years ago when I did a twenty three city tour. Um, it was what I call the unbook tour, and I always wink to my friend Scott Stratton, who wrote the book <laughs> Unmarketing and Unselling, because yeah. basically. I had this idea of this framework for this book that really had been based on work I had done for decades, but I really wanted to first, before writing it, check in with a lot of the entrepreneur communities that I knew around the country from prior book tours and past experiences and really see what parts of the framework were, were really resonating with them, what were not, what were the areas that were really maybe the, the central ideas to work with. So it's a little bit vulnerable for any of you who might have written books before because it's, it's easier if you have your neat framework that's graphically designed and tested in all the stories. Sometimes I would be a little bit, you know, sharing ideas with them and workshopping as we went. But for some reason, the, the very first stop was in Berkeley, California at, at a co-working space called Mothership Hacker Moms. <laughs> and I, which is a very Berkeley, California name. I love yeah. the space. It's so cool. 
And I asked the assembled group, how many of you have ever seen a Native American business presenter at a business conference speaking on a business topic? Many people might have seen somebody in a cultural context, which is wonderful, um, you know, doing sharing some kind of art or dance or a spiritual blessing like my husband does sometimes as a traditional healer. But um, in particular, in the context of a business presenter, I was really curious. And so I asked that group and then I went to 23 other cities, including Vancouver, Canada, took a little stop across the border. And out of those 23 cities, which include, you know, New York, Atlanta, Chicago, San Francisco, just in so many cities in between, only seven people had ever seen a Native American business presenter at a business conference. And four of those were in Vancouver, Canada. So three in the United States. And that was pretty astounding. And for us being parents of Native American children, and we have you know such, so many extended nieces and nephews, it really became clear that there was a gap because the problem was not that they, the owners didn't exist, that the leadership and expertise wasn't there. It was that there was no connection between communities. And in many cases, even many people with good intentions to create more diverse events and speaker experiences would not ever even consider inviting a Native American presenter. And there's a lot of very, you know, deep and disturbing historical reasons for that, which I know we've all been reckoning with both in Canada and the U.S. about really, you know, a campaign of invisibility and trying to kind of hide the, the history of what's happened with our First Nation and Native people. But it really brought it home for us that if we want to do something in our own hometown, with all these budding emerging opportunities that were happening in downtown Mesa, um, we needed to do something about it. So we opened a physical space that all we knew is it was, we wanted it to be a beautiful space where people would feel really welcome. We filled it with art and painted in a huge wall with whiteboard paint, which I know Carly, you and I have drawn across multiple times as we've been doing business strategy and planning and really our intention was to have it as a home base for our offices to start, but really to engage with folks, to talk to people as they came in. And because we didn't have a lot of built-in relationships already to figure out what really was um, happening, who were the folks who were there downtown, and what would be useful to them in terms of a space. Because the mission we had was really to, and still have, is to highlight the leadership that exists but is rarely seen for many marginalized, you know, uh, entrepreneurs. And so we spent a lot of time just in conversation um, and amazing things have happened over the last five years where from those conversations, we've sprouted cultural gatherings, business startup groups, YouTube creators, Academy, um, you know, uh, all kinds of cross-functional groups coming together, artists gatherings. It's been a wonderful, diverse place where we've hosted thousands of people throughout the last five years. And you've made difference in the community, not in the business sense. As an example, I know, was it a senator that you supported? There was, um, for campaigning. Um, Debbie Nesbaniel, yeah. She yes. ran for the House of Representatives and also for the, the Senate. She she got 49% of the vote for both those campaigns, so she just barely didn't uh, didn't make it. But yeah. yes, we ended up incubating sometimes, you know, campaigns um, mm -hmm. of folks 
who, um, you know, were part of what we learned is it's not only about business when you're engaging with community, that often there are cultural components, there's kind of political change in movements. So we've done a lot of a lot of different things. We actually had both candidates for president of the Navajo Nation who reached out to us during campaign time to ask if they could host their meet and greet um, with local Navajos who are living in the urban Phoenix setting. And that's when my husband and I were like, okay, <laughs> the word's getting out. We didn't reach out yeah. to them. <laughs> they reached out to us. And it was really a beautiful sign that we were doing something right to have a good word of mouth um, amongst the Navajo community and broader Native American community here in Arizona. We have 22 federally recognized tribes just in the state of Arizona. It's an absolutely amazing state. I'm just going to put it out there. For those of you listening who have not been, it is one of my favorite places on the planet. And it is it is just so beautifully different, you know, half an hour to half an hour. So there's a shout out for Mesa Tourism. I'm curious. So you have a coaching business, which is very successful. You've taken on this massive undertaking with Daryl and your family to support community. I want to look at the blend between those two. And my question is a few unexpected positive returns that Kay and the community has had on your coaching business. Yeah, I, I see it as really part of the same experience. So everything is really centered on what my core mission is. So in general, I am really, really motivated to reduce economic insecurity, to just make people feel better, stronger, more capable, and probably the best means of doing that that is the most accessible to the most people I have found is small business and entrepreneurship. I love it. I have a passion for it. I love every bit of it from somebody just to having a tiny little side hustle, selling a little something on the side to people who are building really significant, larger scale businesses. And I've had the joy over the last 25 years of just working with a huge range of different businesses. So to me, for my craft, where my craft is really to understand the way in which the small business market works, it really is a gap in my understanding from the, from the, the, I was for 10 years, as I said, a management consultant, really in, in person greatly, you know, based in Silicon Valley, but I traveled all throughout, you know, the U S and often in Europe and Canada, other places. So I was really working in person inside companies. Then for about 11 years, I was doing work all on the internet, doing more of the online community building that started with my blog, Escape from Cubicle Nation, that, that turned into my book. And during that time, I still think the internet is so magic. I, I think it's a miracle <laughs> to this day. I don't think I'm ever not going to be in awe of it, like how we found each other, how I find clients, you know, how I work with people in Singapore and Australia and Barcelona, like it's a miracle to me that we can find each other. There's so many beautiful things about ways we can find each other and connect over the internet. And there really is a gap I learned between understanding the reality of in the US, a staggering statistic, and this was based, I think, on 2019 numbers, but that 99.7% of all new jobs in the US are created by small business. And that's up to, you know, 500 employees, about $10 million in sales. So obviously that's kind of a wide range, but I thought, wow, I know a lot about internet businesses. I don't really know a lot about antique stores or cafes or 
Uh, we have a, furni- a modern furniture store that has both a storefront and also a training business where they teach people how to restore old furniture. So from my perspective, there was such a depth of understanding about the breadth of different businesses, and in particular, the intersection between a lot of things that I had taken for granted having online internet business for so long that sometimes were totally new for the brick and mortar businesses. And then I also saw amazing things that were happening with brick and mortar businesses, especially around customer relationship, customer experience, you know, connection, partnership that um, has been really important to my business. So again, I don't see it, to me, it sort of all mixes up together where we, you know, the the physical space we called ke, which is a uh, Dene or Navajo word that means system of kinship, connection. That's the really, the name of the physical space. Our lab or programs within that space are the Main Street Learning Lab. And that really is, to me, it feels like such a gift to have this place where I can just be constantly learning about what's happening in small business, what are intersections between different kinds of people, and in particular, in in really having a strategic focus on doing inclusive community building, intersectional community building, really wanting to learn about the difference between serving um, people who come from different cultural backgrounds, racial backgrounds, lived experience, gender identities, that um, it's really important to, to to have lived experience having conversation with people and not just take a class about it and, and do something theoretical. Mm-hmm. One of my own experiences in Kef, when I've been down there working with you, so full disclosure, folks, Pam is my business coach. I'm working with her for about five years now and seeing phenomenal results, is that Kef is actually in a, re- a traditional downtown strip, so a retail strip. You've rented what could have been a clothing store, a bakery, a coffee shop, you know, a computer fix it shop and we'll be in a session and you have these beautiful storefront windows, which you have decorated and your son, Jeff has, has much artwork in. you'll bring in client artwork. You'll change that around and people will come thinking it's a shop and they'll knock on the door. And I just love watching the interactions as you welcome them to say, I'm, I'm in a session, but this is, this is what we are. And the fascination on their faces is just, it's really cool. And I would love to be, you know, I'd love to be the little fly on their shoulders. They go home and tell people about what they've learned this is, because I think that is that, that in itself and that conversation ties the community together and opens up people's eyes to what a community could look like and how it can shift. It's very cool. It's really true. And there's something very specific and strategic that's been interesting. There's a model that we are really have adopted here in downtown Mesa, which is called an innovation district. That is a concept from the Brookings Foundation that's based on a lot of research they've done where when they've had areas like ours that that technically have been, you know, lower income or, you know, especially with neighborhoods that um, have a little bit lower income, then you need to have for an innovation district, you have a central theme that you might organize around. So for us, it's creative entrepreneurship. And it's critical to have a whole number of different players. So you have an academic institution as an anchor, which is why now we have Arizona State University building a big campus here. Arts institutions, we have the Mesa Arts Center, which is a beautiful world-class regional arts center. We have really strong nonprofit community that's doing work in the communities, um, like Rail, a really strong partner that we have. And one of the things that is really essential to that are spaces like co-working space or innovation studios. And 
I see it every day because in our space in particular, I, you know, laugh a little bit and I wrote about it in the book that people are constantly trying to like put us in a certain category. We're like, what are you? Are you a, do you have an incubator program? Do you have an accelerator program that people apply to? And I say, nope, it's not how it works. You know, it's led by the community and for the community. So what the community needs, they lead those programs. But to have a space where people can walk in and literally when one gigantic wall is all whiteboard and people can just sit back on the couch and kind of think like, what do I want to do? And what are possibilities? Mm -hmm. People go into a different zone and a different dimension when they step into the space. And part of what we have discovered, we a lot of the folks from the community who lead programs here, we call them the key guardians because they have their own key and they come and do programs. And we were having a conversation one day of saying, what are ways we can better express like what happens here? Because it's so amazing the kind of people who gather and one of our um, dear friends and key guardians, Dr. Joe Tafour, who is a medical doctor and also does a lot of work with plant medicine. He has a long history. He's doing all kinds of studies at UC uh, Southern California about the use of plant medicine, especially to treat PTSD. Um, he leads a lot of gatherings with other like traditional healers and people who are doing that work. And he said, amazing things happen here. He said, this is the kind of space you can come in. And you can be really vulnerable to like have an idea and share it and get really supportive feedback from people. He said, but really the stories are what happen out there. So when people mm -hmm. have these kinds of spaces in which they can dream, what then are they doing out there? And that's where we have so many stories of people who open their own brick and mortar space. You know, Joey Bellis, who opened his own uh, physical training and meditation center of, you know, somebody who created a big new urban garden um, and a group of um, amazing indigenous consultants who now open their own physical space that's run by and for Native American entre creative entrepreneurs in Phoenix. Like that's really, it's really rare and important to have a space where people can just dream about what they want to do without restrictions. So that's one of these unintended, unexpected design elements then I realized it would be a very different experience if somebody walked in the door and I said, hi, I'm Pam. We have a six-week program. Here's the application. Sign up and let us teach you how to be an entrepreneur. That's a completely different vibe than somebody walking mm -hmm. in and saying, hey, how are you? Want some water? Sit on the couch. Like, what are you thinking about? What, what are your dreams? What do you want to create? And like drawing them all over the whiteboard. That's a very, mm -hmm. very different kind of a space that's kind of wonderful to have on a main street. I I hope I have no desire to like franchise or something. I, I'd love to advocate <laughs> the idea so somebody can yeah. do their own twist on it. But I think we need more of those spaces in schools, in the middle of Main Street, you know, and sometimes in the middle of corporate spaces as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, interestingly enough, Small Business BC over the pandemic moved into a new space. And I'm excited for our community to see it. Um, and be able to come in and participate in it for those that are within physical distance of it, um, because we do serve all of all of BC. But it is very it's 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 so much bigger than the space that they had, and it's wide open and it has windows and plants. And I'm excited for it to take on some of the characteristics that you were talking about. This dreaming space, a space for people to meet up. And I know the team is working hard in ideation of who else can we include in this space that can support small business. So and as you were talking about that, um, I never realized before how Small Business BC is building something very similar in welcoming people in 
to find out what they need. So a little bit of a plug for the future space of when we get through the word that shall not be mentioned and we can all come together again, (laughs) (laughs) folks, if you're in town, um, if you live in town, um, consider, consider checking it out. Same as if you're in Mesa. Um, yeah. And have you named that board? Because now I just want to call it the dreaming board, having used it numerous <laughs> times. It is one of the most <laughs> excited things that I get so excited about when we work together. I'm like, we're going to start at one end. And I mean, how many feet long is it? It's like 25 feet. Long. I don't know. It's very, I long. don't know. It's very big. Wall. So folks, if you can imagine it's this retail space that's very, very long that's been turned into K. And there's a there's a whiteboard that is painted from end to end. And I can't even reach the top of it. Now, granted, some of you are laughing because you know that I'm barely five foot three, but it's floor to ceiling. And you you literally start with a seed of an idea and it just blooms across this board. And and my business has been trans transformed there. Um, so I can only imagine how many other entrepreneurs and community groups have experienced the same thing. That's right. I can't wait to visit the Vancouver space. Like, would it safe to get on planes again and come visit? Yeah. I love the idea of each physical geography, really, you know, just thinking of the core design principles for a space, but really making it their own for their own community. Hey there. When I'm not recording episodes for Made Possible, I help motivated business owners just like you accelerate the growth and success of their ventures. So often when I speak with motivated business owners, they want to know how to attract more of their ideal clients. The ones they love working with, who are willing to pay a premium for their products and services. Now we've found that when business owners are looking for that answer, they spend a significant amount of time, money, or both on their marketing messaging or worse, wasting money on marketing campaigns, rather than on really getting to know their ideal clients. While I can agree that your marketing and its message are important, it's rarely ever effective unless you intimately understand who you're marketing to. So our answer to the question of, Carly, how can we attract more of our ideal clients is this. You must gain a deep and intimate understanding of who those people are. At Big Bold Brand, we've developed an easy-to-use, free downloadable tool just for you, our Made Possible listeners. This tool is an audit designed to reveal just how well you know your ideal clients. Because once you identify what you don't know, you can fill in the gaps. And you'll be set up to succeed at attracting way more of those profit-boosting clients and grow that amazing business of yours. All you need to do is go to bigboldbrand.com, get more clients. That's bigboldbrand.com. Get more clients. I'm going to tangent for a second to do with something in the book, which I had um, the pleasure of digging into half of it while I was away uh, on my vacation. And there was a mention early on in the book about specific language and how our language around small business, the word empire is sticking out in my head that, that you feel is broken. And, and I absolutely, I I just, I was like, Oh my gosh. Yes. Can you dig into that for us? Yeah. So this book really comes from a big body of work that is based on working with clients and, and really, finding that there sometimes as, as 
business owners really approach either the issue of if they're first starting out, just, I know I have something really cool and how can I find the customers for it to start? Or in different things I know you and I have worked on, like you have a, a strong business, but you're trying to expand into new areas or really maybe you've like really been working with a, within a certain community and, and there's not as many opportunities there. So you need to build new ones. In, in trying to figure that out, a lot of people pull together just a bunch of tools from a lot of places. So it's like, let me get a CRM and let me take a class about email marketing and then let me do something else around, you know, how do I build a community? And a lot of it just ends up being this Frankenstein-like <laughs> weird approach to a business. Mm-hmm. And, and then more the emotional and metaphorical thing that we think about when building a business is more around this empire language, where you notice we literally say things like, I want to build my empire. And mm-hmm. I, you know, in the perspective, I think probably listeners already know more where I come from. When I'm a community-based person, I always say empires were really great for the person or a couple of people on top of the empire, not so great for most of the other people, you know, especially in areas where empires were like rolling through and, you know, crushing and susuming the societies that were there. Mm-hmm. So it's, I find it really fascinating that we use that kind of language when we talk about building a business. And so we use words like, you know, empire, I'm going to dominate, I'm going to crush it, you know, I'm going to hustle. Um, you know, with just a little wink to people like Gary Vaynerchuk. I've known Gary V for a long time. You know, I, he has a passionate heart. I know, you know, it's not necessarily about domination. There's, there's, there can be an excitement and an energy around really pushing yourself to, to excel and to create, which I totally get. But really what I find is actually the way that most business happens is in partnership, connection, and ecosystem. And Certainly for the research that I've done for this book, close to a decade, the most successful businesses are really built on having a very clear understanding about all the other ecosystem players. There's a lot of partnerships happening. There are a lot of, of you know, really strategic moves to not just be the only player in an environment. When you think about it just from a pure investment perspective, mm-hmm. if you're trying to message to the market that I am the best and only person Carly, I will solve every single one of your business problems. You don't need to talk to anybody else. I will solve them all. I see you laughing right there because you're like, no, you can't. You're not an IP attorney. You're not (laughs) a branding expert. I am, you know, you can't set up my, my, you know, financials and my accounting. Um, And there's a limit to my particular expertise that I have as a business coach you as a business owner really need this whole ecosystem of people around you to fully realize your potential and to grow. And so it, to me, it, it's really just naming sometimes what's the obvious, which is a lot of the stories that we hear that come out of folks who are really successful entrepreneurs have really been edited and focused to say, I am the one who crushed it and I dominated and this is my business very often we find they were not the only ones building that business. There were a whole bunch of other partners that go unnamed in that mm-hmm. type of I'm the empire, I'm the expert. And I think some people can end up going into um, more of a fearful mode of like, mm-hmm. now I'm going to lose all of my power as opposed yeah. to a collaborative mode. And so mm-hmm. that's, I'm just, I'm really passionate about it because I think it's better business I think there's more opportunity. And if you're driven by revenue, which is great, I think you can actually increase your revenue more if you don't try to create an empire and rather 
you really look for good opportunities within your ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, as you were talking about that, the language, what came up for me is often feeling like the language that we use in small business scale and 10 times and this and that, like it, it, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't fit. But when we don't hear anything else, we feel like we have to adopt it. And then we move off of our own center. We move away from the things that we desire. I mean, how many times have I sat down with mentors or other coaches that, that I've worked with or been, you know, in, had an engagement with? And one of the first questions that comes out of their mouth is, okay, so what do you want your top line revenue to be? And to me, that is such a backwards question for purpose-driven entrepreneurs. Because revenue, aka profit, whether it's top line or bottom line, it's an output of, of doing something. And for a lot of entrepreneurs, it's from doing something that you love or that you know is going to create change and that you're passionate about. And, and the language can feel confining, almost suffocating sometimes. So I love just putting that out to our listeners so they can explore well, what language does work for me and who else in the community is using this language? And if I don't have the language, I have this community around me. And trust me, all of our listeners, you do have a community around you. Even if you've started out and you feel alone, call Small Business BC and say, I'm in this business. Who do I need to connect with? Mm-hmm. You know, Call some friends and say, do you know anybody else that's doing X? And just explore the opportunities out there. And that's what I love about communities. There's always someone who knows what you need to know. And you don't have to go you know, down the internet holes or to the academic library, there's someone who can connect you to that much, much quicker. That's right. Yeah. Let's talk about the how-tos. What in your opinion and clear expertise and experience are the core how-tos for building a solid community ecosystem, not building, sorry, stepping into mm-hmm. and working within? Talk to me about some of the, the, the how-tos, like where do, where do our listeners start if this is a new concept to them? Yeah. So there, there is a method that part of what I really um, uncovered and codified in the book were really the order in which you need to be answering questions and approaching building your business. And I'm, you know, nodding and, and winking at Carly, for those of you who might know more <laughs> about her journey, we've worked on really big projects together where she's done an amazing job at codifying her own method and her approach to, you know, creating a surefire strategy and branding it's, it's something I find when we start to get to the how-tos that is very important where people have a strategic foundation for the work and they don't just try flinging out tactics like, hey, I, I need more clients, so let me start a podcast or I'm going to do an email campaign or I'm going to create a membership site because everybody says it's the hot new thing and I'm going to create it. The steps in order are actually really important um, and which are laid out in the book. There's, there's 10 primary steps. I won't go through every single one and we can share some resources. I have like an infographic we can put in the show notes that'll go through and describe each of the steps, but it has to start with a mission. That's what you were saying, Carly, is that really beyond making money, money is awesome. I love money. I love it when my clients make money. Like it's such a, a powerful and tangible thing that we can do good things in the world with. But like you said, it's an output of the what we're doing in our business and why we're doing it. We have to have a really clearly defined mission. So that's really critical to define it. What is that work, that change you're trying to make in the world? Defining your values. What are the values that you have? 
And how are you going to use those to guide decisions that you make about how you operate and who you communicate and connect with? Probably one of the most pivotal pivotal parts of the model is uh, an approach to defining your audience, which is the third step Mm -hmm. with our shared friend and colleague, Susan Beyer from Audience Audit, which is based on her really powerful body of research around how you define your audience, not just in terms of demographics, but in terms of problems and challenges. So when you look at it that way at first, one of the examples I used in the book was Intuit, which is a you know software provider here, you know, and I'm not sure the Canadian version, we have TurboTax, we have QuickBooks is a couple of the products they, they have. And their mission is power prosperity. So you think, okay, power prosperity, that's an overall mission that they're connected to. If you think about their customers and what their customers actually need to do in order to power prosperity, they probably need to fix their money mindset. They need bank accounts. They might need to improve their credit scores. They need to have a profitable business and have a solid foundation, or they need to learn how to get a really good, well-paying job, manage their money, get retirement accounts. You can imagine in order to reach that overall mission, there's a lot of things that people really need to do. And and then part of that is to use software in order to file their taxes and to manage their bookkeeping. That's where you can see where the products actually really fit Mm -hmm. in. So when we're defining um, our customer in the case of, you know, could be for Intuit, where I work with, you know, really smart entrepreneurs who have great businesses, but they have receipts and paperwork all over the place and they never, they don't have any understanding about how much money is really coming in or going out each month. They're stressed, they're overwhelmed, they're struggling with cash flow. That with that definition, that's what people in the market will perk up and say, yes, that's me. Oh my gosh, you mean there's nothing wrong with me if I have a bunch of receipts in a paper bag? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you mean there's a solution? It doesn't have to be that way. And with that definition of somebody who's an ideal client, you can see where I could also say, hey, I also work often with people like that. And while you're helping them to organize their receipts and get their bookkeeping going, then I can maybe help them design a really solid business structure and some offerings that are really profitable in their business and work with strengthening their leadership capabilities so that they're able to really have ultimately, right, that prosperity that we all desire. And so that's a really critical piece to take the time to go through that method. And we lay out a really specific method that Susan uses for defining your audience in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, That to me is such a critical step because with that, that can direct you to understand who are these other players within the ecosystem that from a very pragmatic perspective could be the kinds of people who you could partner with. So I know for me, it's so funny. In fact, today, today's a perfect (laughs) example. I was living my philosophy in the book. I was having a conversation with Tina Forsyth, who is a dear longtime friend, who's a fellow Canadian um, with you up there, Carly. And she runs Online Business Manager. So she trains online business managers and has for a whole number of years. And so for her audience of online business managers, for my clients as business owners, just about everybody I work with needs to eventually hire an online business manager. So we are what I call peanut butter and jelly partners. Like we need each other. Her online business managers need clients. My clients need online business managers. I also talked today to one of my other clients, um, accountant who was trained in Profit First, which is a method based on Mike Michalowicz's book, Profit First. And 
we have the same kind of conversation. What do many of my clients need? They need a really solid accountant who often is trained in profit first because I love to use that method to help people get mm -hmm. their, their finances. It's powerful. Order. Yeah. So it, when you begin to see the world that way and just begin to look at it like, okay, if we're all wanting to really help our clients to, to you know, reach these objectives and we need a number of different professionals in order to help them do that, we need to just start having these small conversations where we really get to know each other, share information, mm -hmm. cross promote. And in some cases, depending upon the kind of business that your listeners have, I know for the first 10 years of my management um, consulting business, but I had my entire flow of clients that all came from referrals. Sometimes mm -hmm. you just need one person who's really embedded in a watering hole with tons of ideal clients and you can have enough work for 10 years. Yes, it's not absolutely. about having, you know, 50 different connections to drive more business. Well, and to speak to that, well, one thing I always love is that you, you, I'm like, eat your own cat food, drink your own Kool-Aid. I'm like, I hate both those expressions, but I think, you know, at least people are probably smirking now, but you, you live your methodologies, you test them. And that is so refreshing when, you know, some people, they just, because they don't operate in that sense of community, they, they do their thing, they're great at it, but they just don't, I don't know, I'm trying to make these motions with my hands and that's not helpful for our listeners, but there's a magic that happens when you step into a community and you intentionally seek folks out and you build those relationships and it's not just about business. It's about friendship. It's about relationship. It's, and that's why earlier you were saying, I don't see the two things as separate. I don't see my business and care and the community as separate. They're all one. I mean, we live one life. And I know from my clients, they're often amazed when we're in session and they'll say, talk to me about some other problems come up in their business. I'm like, Oh, do you need a hand with that? Cause I know someone who, who could hop on a phone with you for 10 minutes and because they're a friend of mine, they would be more than happy to talk to you or, Oh, you have that bigger problem. Let me introduce you to an accountant who I think would be a good fit. Or here's two different accountants who you should talk to to find the right fit. And just being able to support the people around us outside of our own expertise. And for me, a week isn't complete when I don't make connections to people. I'm like, you guys just need to meet. And often people will be like, well, for what? And I'm like, no, you just need to meet just because you're good people. And I trust that good things come of that. And I know you've seen that time and time again with the people yeah. you, you, well, I met Susan through you. Susan right. and I are now great friends and I'm going to put a link to audience audit in the show notes because her methodology is phenomenal as well. It's also integrated into your book. Mm -hmm. um, so Yeah. And it's just amazing how you and I are interconnected so many ways around the world now, simply because we've built a relationship. So it's, a, right. it's just a different way of thinking about things. It's a different way of thinking. And, and to me, a strategic piece of it, because it's not in, in many ways, it's not a, an entirely new concept at all to think about building a network to have, you know, there are many organizations that have been built on the framework of, um, highly complementary or maybe different organizations. We have things like BNI International. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they have in Canada where you might have, you know, a plumber, a doctor, a dentist, a, you know, a candlestick maker, you know, that are all within one group. And the mm -hmm. idea with that, which is a really good one, is you can have sometimes complementary folks who might refer people to each other. Part of what is missing, I think, sometimes and really the discernment about that is 
you really have to be connected via values and yes. notice the way that people work together. First of all, where you have some precision, where you really do do the work to define and understand what is that work you're really doing? Like what is that problem you're really trying to solve? And how are you identifying the very best people that are vetted, that share values with you, that you would feel completely confident that your clients would be comfortable, you know, in working with them? Or who are the best companies who are modeling, creating the kinds of products and services that you would just recommend always mm -hmm. without any kind of kickback or anything, because you just know it's really the best thing. There actually is strategy and discernment and planning that needs to happen in order to really identify who those right partners are and more now than ever, how you should actually spend your time. Because I'll argue a lot of the internet marketing strategies that I love, that I was just raised on in the early days in 2005 of blogging and just like sharing mm -hmm. information and spreading and connecting and talking to people, which was so invigorating and amazing. But now, you know, now with restrictions, you know, based on travel sometimes, um, you can spend so much time just like showing up everywhere and not really getting any traction yep. where you take the time to analyze and say of all the events I could go to, if I'm going to go to one event this year, I want to go to the event that I have discerned has the absolute best information and is centered on a topic that's critical for my ideal clients. The audience is filled with ideal clients for me. If I'm speaking on stage, which I always highly recommend, if you go to that event, try to be a speaker, my fellow speakers are all amazing ecosystem partners. The sponsors at that event are people who I could sponsor and partner with because their customers are the customer in the audience who are also my customers. To really identify those kinds of places or to think about, you know, of all the podcasts I could be on, what are the top five that I could really invest some energy in, in, you know, making a connection with, that's where you can begin to be a lot more strategic. And that's mm -hmm. the part I find sometimes it's missing. If you have an obligation where you have to be referring the plumber, where you've heard, actually, they didn't really do that great of work, but yet you're yeah. in this system where you kind of have to do it because it's the structure. That's yeah. the part. And I don't mean it's, you know, I, I think a lot of organizations are doing a super great job. It's not a knock against them. But I just find that if we can maybe bring that extra level of discernment where you yes. make sure whoever is in a circle, um, first of all, always has um, the discernment to refer somebody or not, but also that there really are shared values. Yeah, absolutely. In, in my model, which you know well, which is developing a Surefire toolkit for your business, a couple of those tools are purpose or mission, whichever you choose to call it, values, what are our values or guiding principles, what is our vision. And from that, we develop a surefire strategy, which keeps businesses in alignment with the folks in the business, keeps them in alignment with their mission, in alignment with their values. And the surefire strategy is really simple. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it away. And if you want to know more about it, people know where to find me. Your surefire strategy is this. Anytime you make a decision, decide you're going to partner with somebody, decide you're going to go to a conference for me, decide if I was going to partner with Small Business BC on this podcast, ask yourself these questions. If I make this decision, hire this person, say yes to this, is it in alignment with our mission or purpose? Will it allow us to live our purpose? Is it in alignment with our values? And will we demonstrate by doing this that we're living our values? That's where authenticity comes from. 
Mm-hmm. And will it move us closer to achieving our vision? It's that simple. Yeah. But that's the easy part because that's the simple. But the, the hard part, like you said, is defining your purpose and getting crystal clear on it. Mm-hmm getting crystal clear on your vision. And that's the strategic work of business that so often people skip over because they're like, oh, they're the foundations. I've done this before. So. Yes, I yeah. know. I find it all the time. And and skipping over it, you really miss so much of the juice because the other components of the method are really important and critical and fun, which are the seating activities, sharing content, creating a beacon, creating, you know, a primary communication vehicle in which you can really be sharing your thought leadership. That's where we can see such a strong and effective way that people do that. And I use a lot of those examples, you know, in the book Mm -hmm. um, of people like Heather Krause, who's another Canadian data scientist based in Toronto, who teaches data scientists about reducing bias and data equity. And she has just developed such a strong and effective way of communicating with her audience. Her primary beacon is her newsletter where they just provide Mm -hmm. great data information, infographics, visualization, really strong training tools. And it becomes something that really stands out and just make, in in your words, right? Really makes, knowing that you work with brands who really want to like strongly differentiate themselves from folks Mm -hmm. out there, when you have done the earlier work to define those things, that's really when you can. And that's when you don't have to sit back and worry, oh gosh, I hope my CEO doesn't say something totally (laughs) that's going to go off the rails. I mean, look at the kind of dialogues we're having on a social, you know, setting, you know, based on really powerful, important social issues that we're dealing with these days. To me, a lot of that is because people are just sort of winging it and not Mm -hmm. really anchoring in what do we believe and how are we going to create a culture and an organization that really holds people accountable for their behavior? Um, Because then, you know, it's not so much you're trying to guess or tiptoe around or being afraid you're going to say the wrong thing. Um, If your values say we really value inclusion and diversity, you better be pretty deeply steeped (laughs) in understanding what that means and, you know, really doing your work in order to, to deliver on that message. Yeah. Not being an all white company who's seeking a DE&I inclusion expert, who's the one person of color at the table, but we'll move on from that. That's you know? right. <laughs> it happens all the time. I'm always glad people take a step, but yeah, there's, they're just, it, you can't skip steps when it comes to doing no. strategic work. No, you can't skip steps. It also speaks to what I talk about often is, are you branding from the inside out or the outside in? And if you're branding from the outside in, you're moving to the fads, you're wrapping yourself in whatever the latest this, that, or the other thing is. And then you wonder why in six months you're like, oh, this doesn't feel so good. Remember, yeah. I, I, well, you know about the itchy sweater. I'm like, if you, if you build your brand based on what everybody else is telling you it should be, you're going to dress yourself up or dress your company up in something that in six months, it's going to be an itchy sweater and you can't wait to get it off versus inside out really looks at those foundational cores. Why am I doing this? What do we want to happen? What is the vision we want to fulfill? How are we acting in service? Those are really amazing questions to get clear on. Um, you mentioned beacons and, and all of the big things to bring people in, in your marketing actions. But I want to talk about something that saved my business five years ago. Pam's smiling because she knows exactly where I'm going. I want to talk about tiny marketing actions. Yes. Well, tiny marketing actions, and I have to give a wink to you because those who end up reading my book, you will recognize Carly's story right from the page, right from the (laughs) get-go in the introduction. I love and I'm so honored to tell your story because it 
the idea uh, for Tiny Marketing Actions really came from the work that we were doing together. And, you know, as, as we tell the story in the book, you know, you are so talented. You've done really strong, powerful work for people for years. And you found yourself in a place that just about every business owner I know has been at at some stage or the other, which is just all of a sudden, like things kind of dried up. There just wasn't the flow because you weren't, you had been so focused on delivering great Mm -hmm. services to your clients that you hadn't really reached out to connect. And when you're Mm -hmm. in that state, when you know that you need to start to get things rolling again, a lot of what the popular marketing culture will tell you is you need to do some huge big launch or some gigantic website overhaul or, you know, make a big, huge splash and create a gigantic YouTube channel or go on TikTok and (laughs) dance to 90s, you know, and do all this kind of stuff to get your business out there. And really what is the best place to start, which is what you and I did. And I I think it was like an offhanded comment one day where I was, you know, making myself laugh as I was writing, like, instead of TMI, too much information, I said, how about a TMA, a tiny marketing action? And I define it as a, you know, really tiny step that is so small to almost feel slightly insulting. (laughs) Like just reaching out on LinkedIn to a past client and sending a little chat message saying, hey, Carly, how you been? It's been a while since I've talked to you. Like that is a tiny marketing action. A tiny marketing Mm -hmm. action could be something I did last year that's ended up having a wonderful, you know, repercussions is I got an email from GoDaddy, which is my, you know, domain service provider. So I'm a customer on their mailing list along with 18 million other customers. Me too. (laughs) Right. And so I got an email from them. And in that email, they were featuring a couple of people who were doing webinars. This was during the time of uh, COVID shut down the first time around in 2020. And um, there were some of the folks I recognized who were doing business webinars. So I was like, hey, let me just reach out. And I just sent them a quick email back. And I said, hey, I'm Pam. I'm in the Phoenix area. And, you know, I'm a business coach. I'd be happy to do a webinar for your customers if you would find it helpful. They got back to me. I ended up doing, ironically, a webinar about tiny marketing actions for their customers. (laughs) Then I ended up doing another one. Then I spoke at their customer conference and I'm doing it again. I'm speaking at their customer conference again this year. And it's just an example of in the moment when you have a hunch, as opposed to what I have done a lot in the past is like, oh man, they would eventually be a really cool strategic partner. You know, they have 18 million customers. (laughs) I would just think somewhere in the future, I'm going to have to do some gigantic big pitch to them as opposed to in the moment, just sending that quick email, just kind of reaching out and doing that. So the, the way that tiny marketing actions works with the strategic ecosystem analysis is Mm -hmm. where you have identified the places in the ecosystem in, you know, fellow service providers or core events or associations you might reach out to or podcast to pitch. If you've identified the areas where you know you want to be making connections, then you can create these little handy habits where when you have five or 10 minutes, you can crack out and do a number of them a day. Carly, yep. I will tell our listeners, is a little nerdy and she gives herself gold stars and a notebook mm-hmm. when she takes mm-hmm. her actions, which I love so much because that's something that <laughs> makes it fun and engaging. And let me tell you, you know, during the early days, I know Carly was looking at me like, how in the world is this tiny, these tiny little steps ever going to turn things around? And I mean, you turned like, everything around just 180 degrees. And it's been amazing to see what happens, but it's the, 
I, when I was talking to the accountant earlier today, I said, you know, we have credit scores that are driven by, you know, financial institutions. We have our, you know, in the U.S., our Internal Revenue Service. You have your Canadian Revenue Service. They ensure that we take care of our, our financial operations on an annual basis. Because if we mm-hmm. don't, really bad things happen. And there are consequences. Yeah. For, for marketing operations, we actually don't have any external body that's telling nope. us we must do those things. Nope. And so a lot of people don't invest and consider that it's actually as essential a habit as it is to have your financial reporting in order and yeah. as essential a habit to be delivering great products or services to your customers. You just can't, you know, you need to have those small, consistent ways that you're connecting with your market. Otherwise, you can find yourself in places where, you know, you just can't find any customers anywhere. Yeah. And trust me, folks, being in that place is terrifying. Um, and <laughs> I've been there. It's pretty dark. It's pretty lonesome. And there's a lot There's a lot of head noise that comes, like a lot of beating yourself up that comes with that. And you know what the interesting thing was is even those that are experienced, I've, it wasn't my first rodeo. It was my mm-hmm. third business that I've built. And I knew better than to not nurture what I would have called back then nurturing my network. Um, I just got busy and heads down and so passionate about the clients I was working with. I was working too many hours in a day to have any energy left to do those tiny marketing actions. And what I love, I want to come back to that piece about GoDaddy, is that, I mean, GoDaddy's a behemoth. They're one of the mm-hmm. top in their industry. And so talking about, oh my gosh, I have to pitch them. And but, but tiny marketing actions take the take the pressure off that. Because if you're doing enough of them, and you also equate it to planting seeds. So if you're dropping mm. enough seeds in and you know, not just ignoring the relationship that you just started with someone, you're nurturing those seeds by just even sending out a simple email. If I met um, Jessica last month, I don't forget about Jessica just because I sent her an intro um a LinkedIn invitation and then had a couple intro conversations with her. I will go back and, and nurture that relationship if she is in that in the ecosystem around me that serves my business. Um, but when you're doing enough of those and planting enough of those seeds, some sprout and some don't. So if the GoDaddy one doesn't go, it doesn't go, it doesn't matter because there's 21 other ones that you've done that week. I know for me, my goal is to do five tiny marketing actions four days out of the week. So I get a day off from doing them, but often I end up doing them on the fifth day because I've actually made it a habit and it's an easy habit to form. The reason I started giving myself gold stars is because my mom used to do it for me and when I was in kindergarten and I loved it. And so it's that hit of dopamine. It actually is scientifically proven. And so I have a notebook and some people are like, well, there's an app for that. And I'm like, well, but that doesn't work for me. You need to find the system that works for you. So you build the system. And I know that if I do... 65 tiny marketing actions and I make 10 introductions or referrals each month that Mm -hmm. my business will sustain and the revenue will stay consistent. I'm no longer riding that sawtooth edge of, oh my gosh, I'm so busy. I don't know what to do with myself. And oh my gosh, I have no business coming in the pipeline and I'm, I'm, I'm in big trouble. So yeah, thank you for exploring that with us and, and revealing what those are. Um, well, from your and, lens, because it's easy for me to yeah. talk about it. But, well, and thank yeah. you for inspiring it. I mean, that to me is just an example of the laboratory of the craft of the work, because mm-hmm. believe me, <laughs> I was sitting up late some nights too, right? When in working yeah. with you or other folks who are in that situation, just thinking, what is the way that I can be most effective and helpful right now? And yeah. often that's where this kind of breakthrough, you know, innovation can come. 
it doesn't replace some of the bigger, longer term strategic things that we do in our business in order to grow a whole new offering or to be looking at, you know, a lot of my clients as they're going through scaling can do the work to really get to a certain stable cash flow perspective and revenue growth. Mm-hmm. And then they're willing to invest strategically in some of the longer term relationships where sometimes it does involve doing a formal presentation, you know, for yep. a company or, you know, expanding your certification so that you're able to, you know, participate in RFPs or a whole bunch of different ways that people grow. But um, it, the, there's been so much fun research. I always recommend Atomic Habits by James Clear mm-hmm. and also BJ Fogg wrote um, uh, Tiny Habits and they both really go into the science of behavior change and habits and why it's actually so powerful for everything we do if we can just really break things down into tiny little bits. Mm-hmm. You know I'm going to go nerd out on those, don't you? Oh, yes. <laughs> They're great. They're both great, great books. Um, speaking of books and nerding out, I have a surprise for our listeners. Um, yes. We have some book giveaways of your new book to give our listeners. And so I'm just seeding that here. So you make sure you tune in until the end. And uh, Darren and I will tell you all about how you might be able to get your hands on one of those. Um, But I also want, I know you have a launch coming up for the new book. It's Mm -hmm. on its way. It'll be here soon. And I would love for you to share with our audience for those who are interested to learn more, possibly participate in your launch. Tell us a little bit about where we get in touch with you, and when we should start following along. Absolutely. So you can always find me at PamelaSlim.com, which is my main website. The the book launch page that we have is PamelaSlim.com forward slash The Widest Net, which is the name of the book. Um, the subtitle is Unlock Untapped Markets and Discover New Customers Right in Front of You, which is, for those of you wanting the full title of the book, but in that page on PamelaSlim.com forward slash The Widest Net, that's where I have, for any of you who are thinking about launching books, part of what is so important when you're getting ready to first bring it out in the world, and that, especially that first seven or 10 days that a book comes out, is when you can have good pre-orders happening and you have people who start or start to buzz and kind of get things moving it can really help to indicate both to your publisher and also to to the the algorithms of the online booksellers that there's a movement and there's excitement, which just makes all of the, you know, spiders that crawl the algorithms say, hey, let's tell more people about this book, you know, so we'll have, you know, if you like this book, then maybe you'll like that book. So, so part of what you, you know, notice when you watch authors that are launching books, just as a little lesson about that is, that's part of the reason why it's so important at first, where people are really sharing um, how to do, how to get pre-orders going, because it really kind of lends a lot to the overall picture. It also is in that first week, usually is where you have measurements for some of the bigger lists. So the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or any of the, the bookseller lists that you have. So what we're doing as a way to... I, my, my goal, speaking about being in alignment with mission, is to just make sure that the kind of tools that we're sharing with people for the launch are things that will just help them to grow their business in, in that way. So we have a couple fun things. We have a workbook, so all the exercises and the tools and templates from the book. 
we have in a standalone workbook, which I did for my last book, Body of Work, and I found was really helpful for people. So that if you want to actually work the method and work it through Mm -hmm. for your business, there's very clear direction through questions you ask and frameworks that really can get you to a place where you have more of a strategic plan for your, your business growth. So there's that. We have an ecosystem mapping tool. That's another fun giveaway. And then I'm doing a, what we're now calling, we're calling it a super class as opposed mm-hmm. to masterclass, kind of trying to get away from that, which I really like. It kind of, I love superheroes and Star Wars yes. and all that. So we're going to have a super class. Um, <laughs> I love teaching. I love to do really hands-on workshops. And so on October 15th, we're going to do a two and a half hour super class, very concretely walking you through a 12-month marketing plan. Mm-hmm. That is the world in which I live as a coach is usually about 12 months is as far as anybody can look ahead and really wrap their arms around what they're doing. From that 12 months, we back up to whatever is the first quarter. So whether we're looking at the last quarter of this year or the first quarter of next year, it can help you have a very clear understanding. Who are your markets? What's your messaging? What are you going to primarily offer? What are ways you can get clear about the kinds of beacons that you'll choose? And then we can get a very specific method for creating a content plan for those of you who get lost every time you stare at social media and think, what in the world (laughs) could I share about my business? Um, I still do that. (laughs) Right. And there's a solution for you. You can really create a method so that, you know, you can define the themes and, and be in much better shape. So it would, you can get all of that just by buying a copy of the book. Um, before launch week. So I hope to see many of you on those virtual settings. I, I always laugh and and celebrate and enjoy with my community because I say, you know, you can say whatever you want about me. That's totally fine. But I have an amazing community. <laughs> yeah. People who show up around work, it, the clients that I have are just interesting heart-centered, world-changing, hard-working people, and more beautiful connections have been made over the last 15 years of my clients with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. The, the inside joke is one of my clients called it the family, which kind of sounds like a cult, but the family <laughs> are people who, like you and Susan, yeah. have met each other through one of the organizing things I've done. And to me, it's just a result of I'm really strategically focused on bringing really smart world changing people together. Like that's my mission. And as yeah. a community builder, um, that's something I do well. So I love it whenever new people show up to events because they're like, oh, wow, that's so there's a data scientist and there's a branding expert and there's an expert on, you know, productivity and and all kinds of different oh, it's interesting it's incredible around this. World. Yeah. And what what's beautiful about that is they're all like people, like they come from all walks of life. And I'm glad you brought that brought up the family because if you didn't, I was going to. Um, all right, before we wrap up, anything that we actually I want to back up a second, folks, I am full heartedly, honestly, not getting anything from pushing this promo. What I want to do is push it for you is because that's how I started working with Pam. I took one of her small courses, I think, I don't even know, it was like, Get your mojo back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was yep. get your mojo back. Yep. And because Pam's background, which she didn't mention, is also adult learning and really deeply understanding that from her corporate career, because you were in corporate training, am I correct? Mm-hmm. I was director of training and development. Mm-hmm. The, the workshops that Pam develops are top-notch, I would say second to none for, for business owners and entrepreneurs. And if you're getting those things 
because just because you're buying the book, like buy the book because it's amazing. I'm halfway through. Um, and you're getting that like, hello, no brainer for what, 27 US mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. So, okay, I'm done pushing that. But seriously, um, it's to me, it's a no brainer. If you're stuck in growing your business, you want to scale your business, you're feeling like you don't have enough community and relationship community business friends around you, go for it. Um, and to wrap up, is there anything that we didn't talk about, about community that you just want to end on a high note on? Not that this whole episode isn't a high note. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it just going back to maybe, you know, individual listeners that, um, can hear some of the concepts. One of the common, um, pieces of feedback or just experiences that I have in working with people is on one hand, you can all of a sudden start to open your eyes and say, wow, like there is a lot of more opportunity out there than I ever imagined. And then sometimes in that same breath, you can say, and that's kind of really overwhelming. <laughs> and yes. so one of the ways to just know about when, whenever you're talking about, you know, shifting the way that you're thinking about marketing is that you really take it one small piece at a time. And you, I have had certain people that just implemented one really small, tiny thing. Like for example, looking for these peanut butter and jelly partners, you know, mm -hmm. looking at your core client base and saying, if I'm a insurance agent, then who is a realtor I can know? Because I know that, you know, every realtor I know eventually wants to refer an insurance agent. And that could just be one small thing you do that could really be transformational for your business. So I call it the accordion principle. If you can imagine accordion going way out and then coming back in that know whenever you're really shifting the way that you're thinking about marketing, or sometimes when we talk about things like community building, it doesn't mean that you have to be surrounded by a hundred people at all times, especially if you identify more as being an introvert. Um, or it feels overwhelming that you can really think about it more in terms of cultivating highly collaborative, you know, really amazing people around that can be emotionally supportive, but also have very specific business referral capabilities. And that it, you don't have to start to do to implement everything at the same time. You can take it at your pace and, you know, over time implement small parts of the method. That is a fantastic and powerful place to wrap up, to bring it right back down to the simplicity. So thank you for doing that because I know there's so many of us that have literally been locked up in our houses for 18 months and we don't feel like there's community around us right now. Um, so as we start to open up, that's really inspiring to be able to think about who are my peanut butter and jelly partners out there and how do I find more of them? Um, thank you so much for being with us today, Pam. I'm super excited and wish you all the best with the widest net and I know our audience is going to get so much out of your sharing your expertise today. So thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Pam Slim. Over the course of her career, she has helped thousands of entrepreneurs start, sustain, and scale their businesses. And you can access her help next because we're thrilled to offer our Made Possible listeners the chance to win one of three copies of Pamela's new book, The Widest Net. There's tons of actionable content within it, and it expands on many of the themes we discussed in our conversation today. So there's three ways to win. For those of you who love LinkedIn, share this episode of Made Possible, tag Small Business BC, and include the hashtag Made Possible. For those primarily on Instagram, again, share this episode in your feed or story and tag Small Business BC and include that same hashtag Made Possible. Or 
The last way, leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. It's that easy. We'll pick out three winners and announce them on episode 10. That's all for today. Thanks for joining us. And we'll be back with another episode of Made Possible real soon.